0: Uh, Psalm 133 verses 1 through 2, a song of degrees of David, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down into the skirts of his garments. Father, we thank you this morning. We pray that you would uh, anoint your word, Lord God, as well as anointing the congregation for the receiving of your word. Father, anoint me this morning to be able to share that word and just let the fullness of your ministry happen this morning. We thank you and we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. You guys may be seated. Great job. Uh, the, really, the key scripture this morning is going to be in Exodus chapter 30, starting in verse number 23, but it's a little bit longer. So you can thank me later for choosing the short one while you were standing. (laughs) Exodus chapter 30, verse 23. You like that? (laughs) Oh, I love M.A. All right. Exodus chapter 30, verse 23. Take also unto thee principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, of sweet cinnamon, half so much, even 250 shekels, of sweet calamus, 250 shekels of casia, 500 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of oil olive, or as we call it, olive oil, a hen. Thou shalt make it an holy an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary. It shall be a holy anointing oil. Everybody say anointing oil. So we're on uh, part three technically, but ingredient number, I'm sorry, part four, ingredient number three, of the anointing uh, this morning. Our series on the anointing is called The Scent of the Anointing. Um, and I realize right off the bat, uh, if you haven't been here for any or for all three, uh, you might immediately be wondering what in the world is anointing oil and what does it mean to me. So I'm going to run through some things really quickly, kind of explain to you why we teach the way that we teach. Uh, first of all, I'm going to assume since you're here this morning that you have some slight interest in the Word of God in the Bible, um, which I do as well. So we have that in common. Congratulations. Friend me, find me on Facebook. Let's do this. So uh, that being said, uh, what I want to ask you rhetorically this morning is, um, are you interested in, in really learning about the Word of God? I don't claim to be, nor does Edgewater or any of the ministry of Edgewater Church claim to be the greatest teaching ministry on earth, but we do have a desire to dive deep into God's Word. And to really understand, here's the, here's the thing, here's the issue that I have, or that I had when I was a, a young man going to church, is that I felt like the more often that I went, the more that uh, I was, uh, whether it was said directly from the pulpit or not, I felt like I left with an understanding that the Bible is very, very difficult uh, to read, very, very difficult to understand, that we weren't meant to understand it all, and that we had to take everything on faith. Now, of course, I'm a big fan of faith, being a Christian, but I'm also a big fan of don't Give me a book if I can't understand it. I don't want to waste my time reading it. I don't feel like it's a waste of time if it's God's word, but it's obviously a waste of time if I can never really understand it. So tell me about Noah's Ark. uh, Tell me about the other popular Bible stories. Tell me a little bit about Moses. Tell me about the cross. Tell me about those things that are popular. And then I guess we don't need the rest of the book is sort of what I left with. Now, maybe that was my fault. I'm not saying it was the church's fault, uh, but that's what I left with. Whenever I really had an encounter with God, my life changed, and I became, um, at least in and of myself, what I consider to be a true Christian. Immediately, uh, really what caught my attention was I walked into a church where there was a man standing at the front, a pastor, who took random scriptures out of the Bible, the ones that sounded a lot like the ones that we were never going to understand, and broke them down and taught them and was able to show a congregation. Of course, I was really concerned with myself at that point, That there's so much more to this book than you could ever imagine. Started to give me the idea that perhaps God gave us these 66 books combined. This Bible, this word of God that we hold in our hand. Maybe every single word of it is supposed to be understood. And maybe the more that we can understand it, the more that we can apply it. And then I had this really crazy thought. I don't know if you've ever had this thought. But maybe if I could apply more of the word of God to my life, I can encounter more of the power of God. Because if there's one thing in life I really hate, I hate feeling fake. I hate being fake about anything. I hate being hypocritical about anything, which is why I need to tell people right off the bat that I'm far from perfect. I will definitely let you down because I don't want to stand up and preach a perfect gospel and act like I have the ability to be perfect. None of us do. We're going to make mistakes, and I'm fine with that part of it. What What I'm not fine with is saying out of one side of my mouth that I serve a mighty, a big, and all-powerful God, and then out of the other side of my mouth, but it's more fun sort of without him. Like, I want the notion of the fact that God is real because I'm pretty sure that I'm going to die. So far, everybody has. And I would rather go to heaven than hell, assuming there are both things, which I always assumed there were. Now I know for sure I believe that beyond believing it. And you can come to a place where you know it. So there's the concept of I want to believe in God because one day when I die, I want to go to heaven instead of going to hell. Then there's the concept of maybe in this life, there's more than that. Maybe God really is all powerful. Maybe there is more to God than what I was taught, what I was taught growing up through different churches and different ministries. I don't know, but maybe the more we understand his word. And the more we apply it, the more we can see and work in our lives. Does that make sense? So what we endeavor to do at Edgewater is to um, to gain understanding and to, to teach uh, and go deep into God's word. We use a lot of different tools to do that. This morning what we're doing is, I guess what you would label theologically as hermeneutics, and I'll explain to you where we get that notion real quickly. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting around verse 45 through the end of the chapter. I don't have it written down, and. Uh, it might be on the screen behind me. The important part is just listen to the, 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 uh, the mentality, uh, the way that we approach it. Uh, it's, a, it's a whole long, drawn-out teaching about how God gave us physical things first in order that we would understand some things so that he could teach us about spiritual concepts. Jesus Christ himself, in John chapter 3, came up to a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leader of the Jewish people at that time. And Nicodemus was one who believed in Christ but didn't understand all the concepts of Christ. The one thing that Jesus was trying to teach him was about how to be born again. Nicodemus couldn't understand what it meant to be born again in the spirit. So Jesus said, listen, if I if I talk to you about earthly things and you cannot understand earthly things, it is literally impossible for me to try to teach you about heavenly things. How many of you want to understand heavenly things? I do. I believe the word of God was given to us for that reason. According to Jesus, we first need to understand earthly or physical things according to 1 corinthians 15 he gave us physical things first to teach us about the spirit according to romans chapter 1 verse 20 the bible teaches us and this is where this is what really puts it in black and white for me so uh, see if this hits you the same way it literally says in romans chapter 1 verse 20 that the invisible things of the world everybody say spiritual these are the things that we need to understand you want to understand heavenly things that means you want to understand spiritual things but spiritual things are invisible Because a spirit is invisible, right? The Bible says no man at any time has seen God. That's because God is a spirit and spirits are invisible. So Romans 1 and 20 says the invisible or spiritual things of the world are clearly seen. It's a contradiction of terms right there, isn't it? We cannot see invisible things, but God is about to teach us what he did to give us the ability to see invisible things. Clearly seen, being understood by the things that he made. Everybody say physical things. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that we're without excuse. In other words, he's saying, I know that you can't see me. I know that you can't see what the word of God is doing in your life right now. I know that you cannot see the spirit working on your heart as you sit here and hear the word of God. Because you cannot see that, I'm going to refer you to something physical so you can understand it. My word is like a seed. Now, we can see a seed. We know how it works. I, I, I physically made you out of the dirt, out of the dust of the earth. So what happens with a seed when it goes into the dirt? With a little bit of water, a little bit of sunlight, it begins to grow and bear fruit. He says, my word is the water. My spirit is the light. If you apply these things evenly, hopefully, you can grow. And the word of God can grow inside of you. You can't see that happen. But you can see the physical thing happen. You can relate it to the spiritual thing. Does that make sense? (laughs) To go one step further, if you've ever wondered why your Old Testament is so thick compared to your New Testament, which is much thinner, the reason that the New Testament is thinner is because the Old Testament is that physical part. It is God taking his people through physical lands, doing physical miracles, showing them physical things with physical sacrifice, physical worship, physical temples, and in in describing all of the details of those things. In other words, just imagine this. What would it take for you to aptly describe what a temple is to somebody who has no concept of what a temple is? You would need to talk about the walls, you would need to talk about the doors, you would need to talk about the gates, you would need to talk about the courts, the inner and the outer. You would need to talk about what's inside of the temple, the articles of worship, when they go in, what they do, how they do it. All of this long drawn out uh, teaching just in order for Jesus Christ to walk into somebody's house one day or stand out on the street and say, know you not that you are the temple of God. See, that's one sentence, but it takes chapters to describe what that means. Your Old Testament is the thickness of the description. Your New Testament is the spiritual revelation. We're in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 30, verse number 23. We're going to read a physical description, and then we're going to talk about the spiritual revelation of what that means. We already read it. Um, What I want to hone in on this morning, we've already talked about the uh, myrrh and what that means. We've already talked about the cinnamon and what that represents. So we're on the sweet calamus. Of verse number 23, 250 shekels, the third ingredient. Going back to the uh, key scripture that we read when you were standing, Psalm 133, I want to, uh, first of all, I want you to know something, um, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Uh, what's important in this scripture is the word brethren. I'll tell you why in a second. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down into the skirts of his garment. So very quickly, message number one of the anointing. I'm going to speak like the micro-machine man. I'm going to go really fast, but we have this on... Uh, we don't have CDs anymore, but we do have podcasts. You can get on the podcast, you can listen to it again, and you can hear it, maybe slow it down, make my voice sound really weird, but at least you'll pick up more information. So what will happen is, in uh, teaching number one, we talked about what the anointing actually is. What is anointing actually? It is God on flesh doing what flesh cannot do. They would take an oil, and they would pour it, and they would rub it on, and they would apply it on the head, on the beard, even down to the skirts and the bottoms of the garments, as we read in the book of Psalm. And what that would do was say, this man is now anointed. He is qualified for ministry or to do whatever God has called him to do. Now, because of that, people get the misconception that the anointing is only for those at the higher rank. It's only for the priest. It's only for the pastor, the evangelist, the apostles, the prophets, those that are doing the work of God. And that is false. What it says right here in Psalm 133 is that when brethren dwell together, everybody say brethren. Now, the word of God is overtly masculine, but when it says brethren, it means brothers and sisters. When people of God dwell together in unity, that is like the anointing. In other words, it brings forth the anointing that you cannot apply as an actual oil. In the Old Testament, yes, but the spiritual revelation, the anointing comes from God, and it comes whenever brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Can I prove that to you? Jesus Christ said, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. Jesus Christ said that. Now let me tell you a secret. Jesus is a name. It's a first name. It's Joshua in English. Christ is not. Christ is not a name. So it's not first name Jesus, last name Christ. When he got a report card, it did not say Christ comma Jesus. It would have said Jesus uh, been Joseph, son of Joseph. That's how they referred to if you wanted a last name. Uh, Yeshua or Joshua. But Christ is a title. Christ is a Greek word. That we had a slide that I'm... Well, Checked out. You are hired. Actually, I'm giving you a raise, but zero times zero is zero, so we can do that. Christ means, what does it mean? Anointed. So literally, his namesake, if you will, means Jesus, the anointing. So the anointing, or the anointed one, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the anointed one, said, if you want the anointed one to show up, That happens when two or three are gathered together. Does that make sense? So that's how we access the anointing. Who is it for? Is it just for pastors, just for preachers, just for teachers, evangelists, prophets and apostles? No, it's for all the brethren that dwell together in unity. Say, everybody say, that's me. So one thing that I want you to understand right off the bat is that if you are a Christian, uh uh-oh, what does that mean all of a sudden? I just thought that meant I was a follower of Jesus Christ. First name Jesus, last name Christ. Well, you just learned something different. If you call yourself a Christian, you have said out loud, I am anointed. And I applaud you for that because you are. But maybe you were never told that. And furthermore, you were never taught what that means. So maybe you don't act like it. Maybe you haven't accessed it. What is the anointing going to do for me, Pastor. It's going to give you accountability with God. It's going to give you access to the power of God. I mean, it'd be one thing for a church to open its doors to sing a, put some lyrics on the board, sing a little Amazing Grace, have a little music, and teach a little lesson, and go to Golden Corral. That'd be one thing, and that'd be kind of fun. It's another thing for a church to open its doors, put some lyrics on the board, And let the Spirit of God move through the worship team to where the song and the same lyrics and the same melody and the same instruments that everybody else uses all of a sudden causes you to your heart to race. Tears to well up in your eyes, a feeling that you don't understand. I'm not at a theme park. I'm not on a roller coaster. Why am I feeling this way? Causes your heart to beat a little bit faster. The reason for all of that is because the presence of God is foreign to your flesh. But it is also something that your flesh greatly desires and is exciting. And it is available and it is powerful. So it's another thing to read the word of God or for somebody to teach a lesson versus hopefully the spirit of God working through a person where you don't just gain a Bible story, but a revelation. Because revelation can change your life. There's two things I can do for you concerning God as your pastor. I can give you an explanation of everything that God does and who he is. And unfortunately, if I do that, it's going to be based a lot upon my opinion. God is not into explanation. The other thing I could do is be a vessel that delivers to you revelation of who God is. Revelation comes from the spirit. It'll speak to you and you'll know it when you hear it. That's what the anointing does. It opens up revelation. It gives you accountability. It allows you to walk in the power of God. Gives you direction. It is the spirit on the flesh doing things that flesh cannot do. Let's go to uh, Philippians uh, chapter four, verse thirteen. It says, "I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me." I'm going to share this every single one of these sermons. So some of you have heard it three times already. If you haven't, I want to point out something to you that maybe hasn't been pointed out to you before. It's a very popular scripture. It's a very encouraging scripture. And anytime you run into an issue, you run into a problem, as a Christian, whether it's at work, whether it's with family, uh, whatever it may be, it's a very popular thing to do to recite this scripture. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. However, if you've ever heard anybody quote that in the middle of a situation, you've probably heard them say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's not what the scripture says, and it's important to understand the difference. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me? What's the difference? Which is not talking about a person. It's talking about a thing. I can do all things through, what did we learn that Christ means? The anointing. Which strengthens me. So as a Christian, how many of you believe God is all powerful? How many of you that believe that that means you should be able to do all things? Do you understand that you don't just do all things because Christ existed? I can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. In other words, it's all based on the fact that he existed, that he died, that he was resurrected. That is a huge portion of it. But that is not it. It's the anointing. I can do all things through the anointing which strengthens me. So whether you know it or not, as a Christian, you have sold yourself short if you have not accessed the anointing of God. Maybe you've accepted him. And you're saved, and you're going to heaven, and I can't wait to see you there. But I'm not willing on this side of heaven to have a boring life, a powerless life, a questionable life, because that's not the nature of the God that I serve. Amen? Uh, ingredient number one to run through it very quickly was the myrrh. What we found out when we studied the myrrh is the way that they cultivate the myrrh and the cultivation of the ingredient is really going to give you the revelation of why God chose the ingredients that he chose first. Before we do that, let me give you a quick rundown of why maybe perhaps he chose five ingredients instead of four, three, two, one, or seven or some other number. Five is a number that means something specifically to God. It is a number of spiritual unity. Whenever God wrote the word of God, he told Moses to begin to write it. He wrote uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was always five books called the Torah or the Pentateuch. And that's because of the five. So the word of God for thousands of years was only five books long. God figured five books of unity were enough to get his message across so that people could understand him and be saved. A few books later... We have Malachi, then we have 400 years of silence, and we begin the New Testament. Whenever Jesus Christ was born, he delivered to us gospels through four separate people, and then a book called the Book of Acts, which is a unique book. Every book after the Book of Acts is an epistle or a letter written back to a person or a church or a place. So whenever he started out, he started out with five unique books, four gospels in the Book of Acts that teach you about the church, the power of the church, who God is, the birth of the church, the power of God, all of those things. So Old Testament 5, New Testament 5. God said that you are the temple, of the Holy Ghost, the temple had five entrances, north, I'm um, sorry, north, east, west, and two on the south. Your body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, has five senses through which things are able to enter into your body. That's no coincidence because five is the number of spiritual unity. In the Old Testament, there were five bars that held the tabernacle together. In the New Testament, there's a five-fold ministry. Preachers, teachers, uh, prophets, apostles, and evangelists that hold the church together, if you will. So number five is a very important number to God. When there were ten virgins, five of them were wise and five were unwise. Five is a number of anointing. It's a number of unity. There's a reason why he chose five ingredients. So each ingredient is going to have a meaning, is going to have a necessary appointment inside of the anointing oil, if you will. Remember what we're trying to figure out today. Did I tell you that we were going to learn something? Because we're trying really hard to learn something. (laughs) What I want to figure out today is how do we access that anointing? And the first thing I want to tell you is it takes all five ingredients. Ingredient number one, the myrrh. The way they cultivate the myrrh was a certain gum tree in Arabia, and it's like a, a, a like a tree where it just it just naturally gives out the sap, like a maple tree almost. The way that they would cultivate syrup, uh, but they needed the myrrh for commercial use, so they didn't just put a um, a spile in the tree and wait for it to pour out a little bit at a time, dripping that sap or that uh, that sweet myrrh, that uh, syrupy ingredient. What they did was they took a, uh, a tool that looked like a whip or a cat of nine tails and they literally beat the tree and scarred it so they could get deep into the bark of it and extract the myrrh at a more accelerated rate. Understanding that, we understand that the myrrh represents the blood of Jesus Christ because that's exactly what happened to him. He was down on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying so hard that his sweat turned into drops of blood and he naturally gave, but just a little bit, and it wasn't enough, so they took him to uh, the courtyard, they flogged him, they took whips, they took tools, they beat him and bled him, and only got from him what he was willing to give anyway. That is the nature of the myrrh, the sweet spice number one in the anointing oil. The second one was the cinnamon. When we looked at how they cultivated the cinnamon, we saw that they what they did there was uh, a, a certain um, procedure they do with trees. Um... Uh, I can't remember, the coppicing I think is what they call it, uh, where they would cut the tree to a certain point so that they could use it, but they wouldn't actually kill it. And eventually, after a number of years, it would begin to sprout new life and it would grow back up and they would do entire woodlands or forests this way so that at 50 years or so they could go back and cut the same trees, use them again and again and again. And the trees cannot age and cannot die because of the way that they cultivate the cinnamon. They basically last forever. And the nature of the root that would grow from the stump is it's different than the original tree that would grow. It's shaped different, it looks different, so that you can tell that this tree has been coppiced. It is not a tree that's growing naturally. So when we looked at that, we looked at the cross of Jesus Christ, because the sentiment is called the sweet bark. And when we approached the cross, Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow after me. If we do that, then we will physically die, but Jesus said you will never actually die. Right? What's, what's his favorite scripture? John three sixteen. Is that it? Or... <laughs> Every evangelist favorite scripture that God gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not die, but have everlasting life. That's due to the cross. Amen. So we saw the cross in the cinnamon. Good catch. And ingredient number three, we're looking at the calamus. So let me tell you a little bit about calamus and how they cultivate it. And I'm going to slow down right here. Calamus is called uh, by name, sweet flag. The reason it's called that is because of how it looks and how it smells. It's a very popular plant in other parts of the world. It has an amazing medicinal value, which is perhaps why they outlawed it in the United States a long time ago. Um don't don't, don't connect anything weird there. Um what what they did was uh, this calamus could be used for so many different things. They literally took it into a laboratory, and they fed it to rats in their diet to see if there would be any um, unnatural side effects. There weren't, so they increased the dosage and increased and increased it until they gave them so much that it was ridiculous and just waited for something bad to happen, which it did. You could do that with water if you wanted to. And uh, then they decided it was carcinogenic and outlawed it, uh, not altogether, but almost altogether. So you don't hear a lot about it in America, but you do hear a lot about it in other places of the world. Uh, sweet flag, it's also called uh, the pupil uh, by a different language. The reason is uh, because one of the greatest medicinal values is to use it as an eye medication. It can help you regain or increase your sight. It's an amazing little plant. Uh, Calamus has also been a uh, long been a symbol of love. The plant was a favorite of Henry David Thoreau, who called it Sweet Flag, and also of Walt Whitman, who added a section called The Calamus Poems to the third edition of The Leaves of Grass, and the poems The Calamus is used as a symbol of love and a symbol of affection. I'll read to you a story about how Calamus works. K.P. Colossa, I have no idea who that is, but he tells a very moving story in a presentation you can access online. He offered this uh, lecture on herbal remedies for autism. It illustrates the immense potential of vodka, which is another name for calamus. He said, I was talking to someone the other day whose child is 16 years old. He's been essentially nonverbal his entire life. He said a couple of things here and there, but really he does not communicate verbally. She was telling me that recently they were sitting in their living room watching TV and mom and dad were sitting on the sofa behind the child. He was sitting a few uh, few feet from the TV on the floor watching his favorite television show. He had never said a word to them in their entire life. In other words, they'd heard him say a word here or there, but he had never spoken directly to them because of his autism, wasn't able to communicate. He had started taking calamus, recommended by the therapist, for about two weeks previous to this night. And in the middle of his favorite television show... He turned around, looked at both of them on the couch, and said, Mom and Dad, I love you. First thing he'd ever spoken to them in 16 years. It's another example of why the calamus is represented by love. There are dramatic stories all over the web about calamus. One comes from Bridget Mars, who told a friend whose boyfriend was in a coma after a motorcycle accident. Her friend applied a small amount of calamus essential oil on his mustache, and he came out of the coma that day. There's also evidence suggesting that calamus can hasten recovery after a stroke. Such restorative actions and neurological function correlate with the Ayurvedic understanding of the plant, Frawley and Ladrite. It is a rejuvenative to the brain and nervous system, which it purifies and revitalizes. It promotes cerebral circulation, increases sensitivity, sharpens memory, and enhances awareness. The reason that I wanted to read all of that to you is when God chooses ingredients for his anointing oil, he doesn't do it arbitrarily. There's a purpose to it. By the time we get through all five ingredients, you're going to see that this little oil has some amazing value. Not only did God say, take a certain amount of all of these ingredients and put them together just to anoint Aaron and to anoint the priest and to show everybody that they're anointed and ready for service. The anointing of God. Let me just say it like this. In the presence of Jesus Christ, there is healing. We should understand that there is healing. So I'm going to say something that might offend uh, some people, especially people that listen to podcasts. If they're parts of other churches, it might even offend you if you've had certain um, experiences in church or with God. But I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell you the truth. When we get through all of these ingredients, I think you'll understand If I was going to say there's one major thing missing in the majority of the Americanized church, and I realize I don't have the authority to say this, but in my mind, and since you're here, you're going to hear it. I have the microphone. I get to do that. If there's one thing missing, I would say it's the anointing. I would say that very confidently. We've got a lot of good people and a lot of good churches that firmly believe in God and that firmly believe that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son. And if you believe that, heaven is your reward. And that that's amazing, and I'm not taking that away from you, or any church, or anybody that's listening to the podcast. However, if you cannot come up to the front of your church house, if you cannot approach an altar where you worship, and fully expect God to do a work in your life, if you cannot come up with a testimony of how you're sick, how you're sick in your body, how a family member, how a friend. If you are not able to access that portion of God and expect that there is going to be a result, there is a possibility... If not a definite understanding that wherever you're at is lacking the anointing. That is not to say conversely on the other side of things that everybody that is in a church where the anointing is present is going to be healthy 24-7. It doesn't mean that you can just come up no matter what's going on in your life. We're going to lay hands on you and it's going to be taken care of. But there is that possibility. There is that expectancy I want to do this, but I'm almost afraid to do this because I don't, some people will think they don't qualify. Other people don't, don't want people to know and won't want to raise their hand. So I have a feeling it's going to look worse than it does in my mind. But if everybody was being honest and I said, raise your hand, if you were physically healed of an actual disease, ailment, cancer, tumors, things of that nature, sitting in this small little congregation right now, there would be a lot of hands that would fly up if people were being honest. I know it because I get the testimonies. I get the Facebook messages, I get the phone calls, I get the text messages, and it happens, and it happens all the time. Slip disc in the back, muscle problems, serious diseases. It doesn't happen every time somebody comes to the front, and it doesn't always happen immediately, but it happens. Because Jesus Christ said... Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. If you're a Christian, but you're afraid to talk about the presence of God, you have never encountered his anointing. And if you have never encountered his anointing, you have never encountered the fullness of what it means to walk out this life as a Christian. What you have encountered is a country club that has slapped the label Christian on the front of it and praise God that he's good enough that you can get to heaven that way, but you cannot access the anointing that way. God is good, and he's got good things for you. And it's more than the t-shirt and the bumper sticker. It's more than a breadcrumb and fish and spirit that looks like Sprite. (laughs) And the cute little bumper stickers and all the different things they say. My favorite one is the one that says, Jesus Christ, it's hell without him. (laughs) That was clever. But it's more than that. There's a lot more than that. I want to go to heaven. I'd rather not go through hell the whole time getting there if it's up to me. And if I am going to go through hell, I want it. I want it to be because I've been called as a soldier to fight back the darkness, not because I just can't get away from it. I'll voluntarily go to the front line. Ugh. Hold on. Step back. God. listen, if I have to. Careful, because that sounds like a real macho thing to say until you find yourself on the front line. You're like, oh, go back. Isaiah chapter 42, verse number three says a bruised reed shall he not break and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. The word calamus only appears three times in your Bible, but the Hebrew word translated calamus appears 62 times. And one of the times where it appears is this word reed in Isaiah 42, chapter 42, verse 3. It's the same word as calamus. A bruised reed of calamus shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench, and he shall bring forth judgment unto truth. This, uh, without studying calamus, you could not get the full gamut of what this scripture means. Calamus looks like a... uh and it's a plant that we've all seen before, now I'm losing the, the name of it. but it's just uh, on, on the top, the roots are what we really what we would use for the oil, but the plant itself, um, a cattail. You know that you know what I'm talking about? Uh, it looks about the same. The difference is the leaves of the calamus grow directly out of the root itself, not out of any type of a stem, uh, but it still has that cattail look, and the leaves are extremely pungent, but in a good way. So what people will do that grow calamus is they'll take it almost like an aloe aloe vera if you will and they'll 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 snap the leaf and they'll they'll bruise it is what it's called uh, but they won't rip it completely off but if you just bruise it and you bruise it a little bit more every day and you break it a little bit it releases that smell because of the the cleanliness of the odor almost like a um, like a eucalyptus oil or something like that, if you put it in a steam room or whatever, it has the same kind of uh, medicinal value, the same kind of cleanliness to it. They literally, back in the day when floors of churches and buildings were just made out of packed mud, uh, inside that mud, inside that dirt, they would, put, they would load it down with calamus leaves. And so they would be right on the surface of the floor. So that as people walked on the floor, they would naturally start to break those leaves. They wouldn't break in half, but they would bruise them. So literally as they walked, it would release that smell. It would release that odor. Let me refer back to the title of our message, Scent of the Anointing. The reason why we titled it The Scent of the Anointing is because the oil itself, the most obvious property of it is the way that it smells. And now, according to the calamus, that smell is released by the way that we walk. You see where I'm going? The Bible says, How beautiful are the feet of those that share the gospel. Jesus Christ was always washing the feet of his disciples when the woman came in and wanted to anoint him and worship him. She got down on her hands and knees and she washed his feet with her hair and with the spikenard and with the oil And they're always talking about the feet. And David said, your word, oh God, is a lamp unto my path and a light unto my feet. And whenever you're a Christian, every day that you wake up, every day that you go to sleep in between, your life is called a walk. It's called a Christian walk for a reason. It is the way that you walk, the manner in which you walk that is going to release the scent of that anointing. How does somebody know if you are a person that has ever been in the presence of God? Because as you walk Your words sound a little different. Your countenance is a little different. Your belief system is a little different. Your expectancy is a little different. You go through all of the same trials, all of the same tribulations, yet you exude a joy unspeakable and full of glory. You have a peace that surpasses understanding. You don't have all of the answers, but you have the joy of the Lord, and that is your strength. Amen? Amen? So they put the calamus on the floor, and when they would step on it, it would release that scent. That's the scent that I want in the spirit. I want it to follow me around. I want people to see when I walk, this man is anointed, not so that the man can get any glory, but so that I might have a little bit of authority to speak life. And then situation. And then when I lay hands and when I speak, there can be results. And I want the same thing for you. I want the same thing for our church. When we go to Africa, to Cindy's Hope, I don't want to just be another church that showed up to Africa, to Cindy's Hope. I want the way that we walk and the things that we say. And when we lay hands, I want things to happen. I want there to be testimonies because without it, it's a waste of time. Almost. When those kids just need people. I'm not trying to say that it's literally a waste of time, but you understand what I'm saying. Whenever we have church under the bridge, how many of you have been there for the homeless ministry church under the bridge? How many of you have heard personally the testimony of the Thousand Hills Ministry, Edgewater Church? Whenever you come, it's different. Have we not heard that every time? The reason for that isn't because of how we dress or the numbers that we bring. We're not very big. It's the food. No. (laughs) The reason, and we, and they don't know it, but we throw first-timers up there in their pulpits. They have no idea. The last time Don preached, I think it was the first time he'd ever preached. They, they thought it was the thousandth time he'd ever preached. Because the anointing, whether it's me in the pulpit or somebody else, hopefully it's the same. The anointing that our worship band sits under is the same. It's not just the preaching. They were blown away that John showed up With Chewy, with Eli, with whoever, I can't remember everybody that was out there. It wasn't the most special thing that John's ever done. But to them it was. There was something different. The service was different. Homeless people gave offerings. That's crazy. That's reversed. That's because they were impressed with the Spirit. And that's all they could think to do. A bruised reed refers to walking on calamus shall he not break. And the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. What does the calamus actually represent? On the graphic right here, this is literally what the root looks like. Here's the unique thing about calamus. When it lays in the ground, it literally lays like that. Horizontal instead of vertical. And it always grows... Somewhere along the edge of water, whether it's a pond or a creek or a riverbed, it grows right on the edge. The root is always submerged and it's always laying horizontal instead of vertical. In fact, botanists refer to this as the stem since there's not an actual stem and the rootlets, which they would normally say are the actual roots. So what we're looking at is the stem of the calamus and the way that it lays and where it lays which I don't think is any coincidence. See, there's a, there's a teaching in the Word of God. There's a certain thing that we're supposed to do and understand, which is called mikvah. Probably a lot of us haven't heard the word mikvah because there's a New Testament word for it that's very different, and I'll tell you what it is in a second. But Back in the day, you could not approach God, and we're going to end on this concept, so if you're looking at your watch, you can stop. Remember Lot's wife. So, uh, mikvah, what they would do is, in order to approach God and, and be ceremonially, ceremonially clean so that they wouldn't be struck dead or, or, or not hurt or anything bad would happen, they would literally have to go into uh, a mikvah itself. The mikvah uh, was always dug in the ground, and it was always six feet deep, which sounds like something else, and it had to be full of what they would call mayim hayam, which means running water. And they would have to dip themselves in that water and back out. And then they were considered cleanly and ceremonially clean. And they could begin to approach God if they were a priest or if they were the high priest or whatever the, whatever it was they were doing. Even regular men and women had to mikveh very often in order to just walk out their day uh, in the presence of God as clean versus unclean. Mikvah is the concept of what later got turned into baptism. But baptism is an invented word. It didn't exist until they decided to change mikvah into baptism. Uh, mikvah is the concept of immersion that you are covered from head to toe. Literally, you had to be covered by water, six feet deep. It represents a grave. The reason that it represents a grave is that the book of Romans will tell you uh, that whenever you are crucified with Christ, which he says you must do daily, take up your cross daily, whenever you are crucified with him, it means that you have died to your flesh. It means that you are repenting and you've said, Father, please uh, forgive me for my sin. I'm trying to change my ways. I'm repenting of the things that I'm doing. I want to die to my own pleasure, my own self, and be crucified with you. Everybody say death. So the Bible says you have partaken of the death of Christ whenever you approach the cross and you decide to accept him in the method of repentance. The next step is baptism. And the Bible says in the same book of Romans that when you are baptized, you are partaking of his burial because it's supposed to be six feet deep and it's supposed to cover you from head to toe. What is the one thing that you cannot do underwater? You can't breathe. So it represents death like you are dead for a moment. And then when you come up out of the water, the Bible says you are a new creature under Christ. So the burial, uh, the, I'm sorry, the baptism represents burial. So we have partaken of his look how, Look how this is going and see the direction that we're taking it. Myrrh represents the broken body of Christ when he was beaten and bludgeoned, but not dead. The cinnamon represents the cross upon which he died And now we're finding out is that calamus always lays horizontally and always lays underwater, just like a person would lay in a grave, just like you would lay when you go down into the baptism tank, just the way they would lay inside of a mikvah. And so the calamus is very much representing to you and to I baptism. So we're following a pattern in a perfect order. Why the sweet-smelling calamus? Well, the Bible says that baptism is not the washing away of the filth of your flesh with the answer of a good conscience toward God. The Bible says when you approach Jesus Christ that he said, the world, they hated me, they'll hate you. I was persecuted. You'll be persecuted. So in other words, you will be bruised. You will be beaten down to a degree. You will be broken to a degree. But you will never be broken off. He said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And it's right at those points of bruising and breaking where the sweetest smell will be released, the scent of the anointing. Those leaves that are broken, they grow directly out of the water. This lays horizontally. There is no stem. The leaves just grow directly up. That represents what's on top of the water, the sweet savor of that new life, that new creature in Jesus Christ. Let me read to you Acts chapter 2, verse 37 says, now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart. The story here is when the Holy Ghost came, this is where the church was born. And they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? In other words, uh, this is, there are men from 70 nations asking Peter and the apostles, what must we do to approach God? What must we do to be saved? And he says, repent. Everybody say the cross. The cross. And then be Baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, in the name of who? Jesus the Anointed One, for the remission of sins, and then you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for the promises unto you, your children, and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. The worship team can go ahead and come up. If you were ever going to scour the Word of God for a three-step plan for salvation and serving God, this is where you would, this is where you would land. Acts chapter 2, verse number 37. If you want to know exactly what is it I'm supposed to do, you're supposed to repent. Where does that happen? It happens at the cross. What does it mean? It means to turn, to change the way that you think and act. That's step number one, that's salvation. After salvation, step number two, water baptism, which gives you the answer of a good conscience towards God. In other words, it's your first step in obeying God in this new life that you've received through repentance. Myrrh, cinnamon, calamus. And you're more than halfway on your way to being anointed and walking in that anointing. Someone once asked, and this is a major, a major part of what the anointing does. Someone once asked on Henrietta Cress's herbalist, when you take calamus, what thoughts run through your mind? In other words, what they were asking is whenever you take this portion, this singular ingredient of the anointing oil, how, how do you feel? What does it make you think? Is, do you, is it, does it clarify your thoughts? Does it make you feel better? Does it help with your sinuses? Is it is it something that, that helps you think more positive or... What is the deal with this calamus? The reason they're asking is because so many people just take the roots and just chew them. And they claim that it's a, like a natural um, stimulant. And in, in other words, it just all of a sudden you feel better. Which is why it's good for things like autism, ADD, ADHD. It synchronizes and clarifies your thoughts, or so they say. But here's the, uh, here's the interesting response to this question. And it's something that I, that I desperately want you to grasp about the anointing this morning. Who you are, when you've said that you are a Christian, you have said that you are anointed. We've covered a little bit about what that means, but that's in more of a congregational sense. In an individual sense, what does it mean to daily wake up out of your bed and step into the Anointing or the presence of Jesus Christ? What does that do for you? And if you're honest, I think you're going to like this answer. They said, So what thoughts run through your mind? The reply was, Personally, what I find remarkable are the thoughts that don't run through my mind. That is point blank a litmus test. For walking or understanding whether or not you're walking in the anointing of God. I think if we're all being honest and we were given a choice. If Jesus Christ himself showed up and said, I'm going to give you something. You choose behind door number one. are positive thoughts to pile on top of all of the other thoughts and all the other things that are going through your mind daily. Behind door number two is a remedy that's going to wipe away all of those unwanted thoughts and just leave you with a clear mind. I know which one I would pick. I don't want more convolution, good or bad. I'd rather just have peace. So what is it about the calamus? Those crazy thoughts that run through your head? Those times where you just want to give up? When you can't find any other answer to the equation? Maybe I should just stop Maybe I should just quit. Maybe I should just quit this relationship. Maybe I should just quit this job. Maybe I should just quit this direction. Maybe there's no way out. Maybe it's just all over. And I don't want to be morbid, but people deal with it every day. Maybe I should just quit life. Those thoughts at the end, the Bible says they're fiery darts The enemy throws at you every single day, every single moment. He just wants you depressed. He wants you down. He wants you confused. He wants as many thoughts in your brain as possible. So you can't decide whether to go left, right. You don't know what's up. You don't know what's down. You don't know what's right and what's wrong. Jesus Christ says, I want to anoint you. I don't just want to anoint you so you can stand up in front of a group of people and deliver a powerful message or a powerful song. I don't just want to anoint you so that people can claim that you're godly. Inside of my anointing are oils that are medicinal. I want to heal your sight. I want to heal your skin. I want to be able, I want you to hear better. I want you to walk better. But probably above all else, I want you to find peace in your mind. I'm not just anointing you to so you can deliver to other people, but I'm anointing you so you can walk day in and day out among an enemy and among spirits that hate you and want the worst for you and instead of finding depression and instead of thinking negative you can find peace and you can think positive you're anointed in other words to walk among your enemies i believe it was jesus christ that told us to love our enemies and pray for those that despitefully use us that is unnatural How do you do that? I don't think you do really do that. If you don't spend a little bit of time in the presence of God. Underneath his anointing. You may not know it, but you need to be anointed just to wake up in the morning. You need to be anointed to be a godly parent. You need to be anointed to be a godly spouse. You need to be anointed to be a godly friend. You need to be anointed to be a Christian because the truth of the matter is when you said you were a Christian you said you were anointed the body the blood the cross the baptism in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 says the Holy Spirit which we'll get to somebody just say I need it all All. let's try that again I need it all all it's really not what it's saying, but it's a different way to take it. All things work to good for those that love God and are called to his purpose. Just another way to think about it. Maybe that all is referring to everything that he has for you works to good. I need it all. I need all five ingredients. I need to be anointed. I need the word of God. I need the spirit of God and I need the people of God. Amen.